This week, we are alive in Christ, amen? But let's review what we put into our treasure chest last week. It was, first, the capacity to love like Jesus. Remember the same spirit that is in Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, is in us, which is pretty amazing. We have spiritual wisdom and insight, which is very important to navigate this life. We also have light flooding our way so that we overflow and we're able to minister to others. Uh, we have knowledge of God and his greatness. And through that, our faith is strengthened. Uh, we have an ultimate leader. We don't have to do this on our own, and we can trust all his plans. And lastly, but certainly not the least, we have been made full and complete by Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, if we surrender our lives to him, he fills us to capacity. I love that. And so we don't have to worry about becoming like the church of Ephesus. You remember we mentioned them last week in the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, I have this against you. You were, you were doing so good, and then you lost your first love. And that first love was not only for him, but for God's people. And so there was a warning in there. But chapter 2 is a wonderful beginning, and we're going to uh, pray before we get into God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing chapter that we are about to uh, dive into. There's so many wonderful things in it, Lord, and we would ask that you speak to each one of us in a personal way so that we truly understand just how precious we are to you. And so, Lord, we give you this evening as that you pour out your blessings upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10, and I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. And verse 1 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Wow, many sins. You know, you're probably thinking, well, you know, I don't have many sins. I mean, I haven't sinned recently, right? You know what Romans 3.23 tells us? For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So you might be saying to yourself, okay, so maybe I sin a little bit, but you know, I don't sin as much as that person or that person or that person. You know, we want to point to other people who sin worse than we do, hopefully, hopefully deflecting, but that's common, uh, uh, that's just very common for us to want to do that. But the answer is found in the second half of our Romans verse here, you see, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And what standard is, is that? And that is perfection. You see, we are not supposed to compare ourselves to other people because you can always find someone who is worse off than you, who sins worse than you do. But our standard should be perfection. And compared to Jesus, I look pretty bad. But wait, there's hope. Verse 2 goes on to say, you used to live in sin. So they're going to describe exactly what you were like in that life. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Wow, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Well, let's break this down a bit. Number one, 
You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. The key word here is used to. We are all believers here, so we used to be like that. Uh, in fact, Pastor Jeff was talking about it just last Sunday where we are a bunch of has-beens or we used to be's. You know, and I love that. We used to be drunkards and fornicators and liars and stuff. And I'm not giving my testimony here. I'm just giving you, ex <laughs> giving you some examples here. But in other words, we used to live in sin. We didn't care that we are sinning. We were just following what everybody else does. And then it says, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. You're going, hey, I didn't obey the devil. I was just doing my own thing. Well, as unbelievers, that's exactly what we're doing. I like what the ESV version tells us. It says, he is the commander, the prince of the power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So like it or not, we're always controlled by something. Either we're controlled by the devil or we're controlled by our Lord, Jesus. Most humans don't really need to be directed that much because we do pretty good on our own as far as sinning, right? Uh, but it takes the work of Jesus to set us free from that. 1 John 3, 7 and 8 says, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. You see, we're supposed to be Christ-like. We're supposed to act like him, like him. If he wouldn't do it, we're not supposed to be doing it. It says, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So there's also... Good news here along with some bad news here. There's a strong warning. It says if you keep on sinning, it shows that you may perhaps belong to the devil. That's pretty scary, isn't it? But what does that mean exactly? In other words, you sin without restraint. You don't care that you're sinning. You're just going along with what everybody else does. But as believers, have you ever noticed that you never seem to get away with your sin? It never. You always get busted for it. And whether it's just God convicting your heart, making you miserable because he's going, you shouldn't have done that. And you're going, I know, I know. And you, you're miserable until you confess it, don't you? Aren't you? You are miserable. But if you're a true unbeliever, then you don't care that you've sinned against God. That's the difference. Going back to our verse in Ephesians, he says, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is always at work in unbelievers and believers alike. He just has to, he, he works with each one of us as individuals. Whatever we need at the moment, he will speak into our hearts. And so when we were unbelievers, what was it that, that drew you to God? We all have a different testimony. For me, I grew up in the church. You know, I was called goody two-shoes. That's an old phrase. But, you know, I, was ne I never really did anything bad. Grew up in the church. And, 
yet it never clicked in my head that this whole Jesus thing was true. Until one day I was reading the gospel and it was like, then the Holy Spirit says, okay, she's ready. And it was like the light bulb went on and the Holy Spirit said, this is all true. And I go, whoa, that's really amazing. But see, we all have different testimonies. The Holy Spirit was working in me before I knew him. The Holy Spirit will work in each one of uh, your unbelieving friends and family. So never give up. But now that we're believers, the Holy Spirit continues to work in us, guiding us and directing us and convicting us. But the Spirit is always at work. And I love it that it says that the Spirit works even when they refuse to obey God. He never gives up on them. So we should never give up praying for our friends and family that are unsaved or if they're in a backslidden state. Then verse 3 goes on to say, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclination of our sinful nature. Wow. That's true though, isn't it? When you think about it, it doesn't have to be like any gross sin, but you know what? We're prideful. We're arrogant. We refuse to follow the word. So we're just as bad as all the other sinners. You know, you might say, well, you know, I, I never stole anything. I never killed anyone. I didn't commit adultery. Yeah, but you, you were a gossip. You were proud. You were arrogant. God hates that sin just as much as he hates the other sins. So it goes on to say, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger just like everyone else. We were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. I love that it's past tense. So Paul is reminding us of our past lives, the condition we were in before we knew Christ. Whenever I get frustrated with people, you know how you have those people that you work with or go to school with, or you see at the grocery store, you know, they always seem to be there when you're visiting the grocery store. You know, that's those kind of people that just rub you the wrong way. And sometimes we get very impatient with them. It's like, why can't you just change? Why do you have to be the way you are? Holidays are coming up. We always have that, you know, uh, Uncle Harry that just drives you crazy. I don't have an Uncle Harry. I made up that name. But we all have somebody that it's like, oh, are they really coming this year? You know what they did last year, you know. And, uh, you know, we need to, instead of being frustrated with them, it's saying here we need to love on them because we used to be just like them. That's how that works. And when you think of it in light of that, then you're going, yeah, you know what? God showed me a lot of grace. I should show them a lot of grace because our frustration and anger and disdain for them is just going to drive them away from Jesus instead of drawing them to him. Then it goes on to say in verse 4, but God, my two favorite words in the Bible, but God, who is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much. So he's rich in mercy. Mercy according to Webster says, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one power to punish or harm. I think that would be God, wouldn't it? It is within his power to punish or do harm. But because of his mercy, he doesn't do that. Another meaning would be that God is not going to give us what we deserve. 
which would be punishment. But God is also so rich in love, that is why he shows us that mercy. So let's read verse 4 again and see how it affects verse 5. It says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much, then verse 5, that even though we were dead because of our sins, and that's exactly what was wrong with us, we were dead, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So let's look at what God did for us because he loves us. We were dead in our sin, but because God is rich in mercy and he loves us so much, instead of death, he gave us life. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? And to prove that he had the power to do this, he raised Jesus from the dead. That shows you he was kind of backing up exactly what he was promising. I will raise you from the dead. I will give you new life just like I gave my own son new life. So how do we all receive this? By God's grace. Verse 6 goes on to say, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus Christ. Now, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we are now united with him. We are part of God's family. And then we're going to be in the heavenly realms with him. Okay, you're talking about after we leave this world, we get to be in heaven with him. But what does that look like? I love to look up verses about heaven. John 14, 1 and 2 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Whenever we think of death, our hearts are troubled, aren't they? You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go prepare, I go to prepare a place for you. That's a promise that Jesus gave us. He's preparing a place for us to live with him forever. It gets better. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Wow, simply put, in your wildest dreams, you cannot imagine how great heaven is going to be. Now, I can imagine a lot. I have a wild imagination. And it says here that I can't even come close to imagining what heaven's going to be like. That's pretty exciting. Because, you know, I could, I've been to a lot of beautiful places on this earth, and it says none of them are even going to compare and now, there's even more. Revelations 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Amen. Praise God. Right? No dying, no sadness, no pain. That is a glorious thing indeed. So God is preparing, or Jesus is preparing a place for us. We can't even imagine how great it is. And when we get there, it's just going to be all joy in the presence of the Lord. I think that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And it's awaiting all of us who believe on the name of Jesus. Verse 7, it keeps going. I mean, this is like a plethora of treasures here. So God can point us to, 
can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who, who are united with Christ Jesus. So, ever wonder why God just doesn't snatch us up to heaven the minute we receive him? It's like, you know what? I want to leave this earth. I don't belong here. Heaven is my home. This earth is not my home. I love there's a song that's kind of like that, you know. This world is not my own. I'm just passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh, Lord, what will I do? I love that. It's an old gospel song. It's, we yearn to go to heaven, but God leaves us here for a purpose. You see, we are to be a testimony to the rest of the world of God's grace. That's what he's talking about here. He says, I want the rest of the world to know all about my mercy and my grace and my love for you. We're kind of like a lighthouse, a beacon for people that are lost at sea and they need to be saved. And there's so many of them. That is why God has left us here, to be that witness and we can accomplish that if we allow God to work in us and through us. Then verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Now, most of us know this one by the New King James Version. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So God knew man's compulsion to think that they can possibly be saved by their works. I mean, people are trying to work out their salvation all the time, and they've been doing it since the beginning of time. Therefore, he made salvation strictly a matter of grace and faith. Why did he do that? Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Boy, he really knows man's pride, doesn't he? We would be boasting about how great we are that we have earned our salvation. I am so holy, you know. Oh, wow. You know, we would do that. Religions throughout man's history has always been about being good enough to reach that, uh, that, that plane of existence, that nirvana, that heavenly place. In Islam, you achieve salvation by following the five pillars of Islam and living a just life. And just hopefully your good outweighs your bad or you actually martyr yourself. Then you get to go to heaven. You see, the problem with that, this is all works. What if you didn't work hard enough? They don't know until they die whether or not they're gonna be in heaven. What a horrible place to be. Buddhism, people achieve complete peace and happiness by eliminating their attachment to worldly things. Can that ever get possible not to be attached to worldly things? So consequently, I'm not too sure too many of them get complete peace and happiness because they don't have the Prince of Peace. So it's not true peace. It may be a false peace. Hinduism, a soul never dies. This one's really depressing. But is continually reborn depending on how good you have been in your current life. So if you're a bug 
That means you didn't do so well in your previous life. And you're going to have to do a lot better if you want to become something a little better. <laughs> but see, the problem with that is this is one of the most unloving religions there is. That's how people in India can walk by starving children and not reach down and help them because they, they think they deserve what they have gotten. And it's very, very tragic. And the common denominator in all these religions are about how they can try to reach God or reach that higher plane of existence. They think the individual can achieve this. However, the faith we have in Jesus is all about how Jesus came down to us. Not that we had to go to him. He came down to us and saved us. That's why it says it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God so that we cannot boast about it. James 4, 6 tells us, but he gives even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. You see, when we think we can achieve our own salvation, what happens? We become proud, but God favors the humble. So receive his grace and be saved, knowing that you can't do anything for that grace. This is important. And the good, good things will come because we love God. You see, our works are a product of the faith that we have in in God. Our faith causes us to have good works, in other words. James says a lot about this, and it's in James 2, 14 through 17. And I'll read it. It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't know it, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So we're going to break this down a bit. So you have no question about what's being said here. Verse 14 says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show up by your action? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So notice it doesn't say that you were saved by this. That It says that you have been saved through faith, and it will affect your life. There will be works. The scripture goes on to give us an example here. It says, suppose you see a brother or sister in need, and you don't do anything about it. What good does it do? So this is a rhetorical question, although we're not going to make light of the fact that we, we're talking about people who are disadvantaged. But the emphasis here is that you, say you, have, you can say you have faith all day long, and if you don't do anything about it, if you don't use that faith for the, faith for the kingdom, is it really faith after all? It, because it's accomplishing nothing. Then it says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So let's break this all down. 
in light of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Number one, we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. It's not about you working for it because otherwise we'd become boastful. However, because we have this salvation through faith, that faith produces works. Those works must be for the glory of God. So now, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece. An American tourist in Paris who purchased an inexpensive amber necklace in a trinket shop was shocked when he had to pay quite a high duty on it to clear customs in New York. This aroused his curiosity, so he had it appraised. After looking at the object under a magnifying glass, the jeweler said, I'll give you 25 grand for it. What? Greatly surprised, the man decided to have another expert examine it. When he did, he was offered $35,000 for the necklace. What do you see that's so valuable about this old necklace? Asked the astonished man. He says, look through this glass, replied the jeweler. There before his eyes was an encryption from Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. You see, the value of the necklace came from its identification with a famous person. Our value comes because we are identified as belonging to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He is our king. He is our Lord. But do you truly look at yourself as one of God's created beings, one of his amazing masterpieces? We should. We all should. And always remember that God is not concerned with what's on the outside. He's always concerned with what's on the inside. Then verse 10 goes on to say, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So unlike a masterpiece that has been restored, like a painting, we have been made anew, again, afresh. Are we talking about the outside? No, that comes when we we go home to be with the Lord. We get new bodies, of which I'm looking forward to. But first Peter said it perfectly. In 123, he says, for you have been born again or anew, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. So you are now an eternal masterpiece. Your spirit will live eternally and you will receive a new body. But for what reason? Why is God doing all this work in me here and now? Verse 10 goes on to say, so we could do the good things he planned for us long ago. You see, God's plans are always good, aren't they? And always remember that the plan is God's plan, and he makes it happen, so we don't have to worry about it. All we have to do is submit to him. Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He promises to complete the work that he starts. It doesn't happen overnight. God does the process very gently. Depending on where you're at in your life, he understands. Nothing is hidden from him. 
He knows what you need to get you on the right track. Our job is to simply submit to him and the process. And be patient because it will come. The change will come. Uh, the Bible shows many examples of, of people that were used mightily by God, but it took a while. God spent 40 years working in Moses before he could work through him. At the beginning of his ministry, Moses was stubborn and depended on himself and his own strength. Remember, he killed an Egyptian, had to flee Egypt, and he ran into the desert. You know, hardly a good start for a ministry, right? But during those 40 years as a humble shepherd in the desert, Moses experienced God's working in his life that prepared him for 40 more years of serving God in an amazing way. And there's other examples in the Bible. I mean, look at Joseph. For 13 years, he was tormented by his brother. He was thrown in jail. He was a slave. But eventually, he was on the throne of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. David was anointed king when he was a youth, but he did not gain the throne until he had suffered many years in exile. King Saul was always trying to kill him. Even the apostle Paul, after he was converted, spent three years in the Arabian desert. So God does what he has to do. Of course, you're probably saying, well, I don't want to wait 40 years. I'm with you. I'm very impatient myself. But trust the process. You will get there. God has to work in us before he can work through us. Remember, he is the potter, we are the clay. So, what is a key takeaway from our scripture? Well, the one that stands out most is that God's amazing, God's amazing work in all of us that he continues to do. We were once wretched sinners and he saved us by his amazing power. He continues to transform us and promises to continue that work. And our job is to always know that God is working in us and through us, and that is the only reason why we accomplish anything in this world, because it truly is. So we get to add more treasures to our chest this week. We have a transformed life. Amen to that. We were once sinners. And he made us into new people, new daughters. He gave us mercy. He could have left us to our own demise, but he loved us and showed mercy upon us. And that love for us compelled, compels us to serve him. Then we have grace. Instead of giving us what we deserved, which is death, he gave us his grace. We also have a new life and a future. And he promises that with this new life, he will give us a wonderful plan for that life, which he had in mind for us from the very beginning when we were just a thought for him. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, it's all about grace. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, her time, that is a wage, isn't it? When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for her performance, 
that is a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for her long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a good picture of God's grace and unmerited favor. Amen? So be patient with the process. God isn't finished with us yet. He promises to continue to work in you, through you, guiding you, directing you. He has a wonderful plan because you are his masterpiece. Amen? Let's pray. I thank you so much, Lord, that we are your masterpiece, that no matter what we do, all we have to do is confess to you and you restore us and you continue that wonderful work that you promised to do in each one of us. Help us to truly understand this, Lord, and to apply it to our lives. Help us to never listen to the enemy as he seeks to uh, confuse us, condemn us. Lord, we thank you that you do convict us of sin, but you never condemn us, Lord, and I thank you for that. And so we give you this evening, Lord, as we continue to study your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.